Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Talia David. Talia has offered and has had this all her life, despite only being diagnosed in 2020. Talia joins us today to discuss her diagnosis, the impact it has on her day-to-day life and the stigmas associated with Arthur. Hello, Talia. Hello. How are you today? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Um, the sun is shining, as we can see from my very white background. I was trying to get rid of it earlier, so I t- I closed the curtain and then turned just the light on. And I honestly, was my face was so blurred. And also, I was like, it's what four o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe shouldn't have the light on yet. So um, yeah, so I've just got this very. I look like an angel, like I'm glowing behind me. <laughs> but yeah. We're all good, I think. So I am super excited to speak to you. This is actually our second episode on Arford. Um, The previous one we did was with a lady who was a researcher in Arford. So I'm really interested to hear it kind of from your personal perspective rather than the research perspective. Um, So I wondered if you kind of wanted to start maybe talking about, you know, your experience of Arford and kind of how, how that came about for you. Yes, of course. Um, it started at a very young age for me and it was simply treated as I was a fussy child. Uh, and that went on for many years before it was sort of properly taken notice of. Um, for me, I think ARFID is a mixture of emotional responses and like psychological symptoms. And then that also results in like physical symptoms coming through as well then. Um, so, for example, I'm, I'm extremely scared about food poisoning, despite I've never had it before. And then I'm so scared of this to the point where I will overcook my food to like really make sure and check my food as I'm eating. And even after all of that, I'll still feel extremely nauseous throughout the day afterwards until like the safe amount of time has passed. And like, I definitely can't have it now. Mm-hmm. This obviously impacts my life a lot as well. Um, I find it really difficult to go out and be around people when something like that is happening. Um, I do have good days and bad days, but it's so unpredictable. And it's also very hard to explain to people, like, I'm not ill, but I'm so scared of being ill that I've kind of done it to myself in a way. Um, And these often cause chain reactions then of different symptoms and feelings and, you know, Um, Something I found out since getting my diagnosis is that I have a very, very good sense of smell and taste. Um, So sometimes if somebody says something like, this tastes exactly like chicken, or this tastes really similar to this fruit that I already like, you know, you think, oh, great, you know, go ahead and try that. And to me, it is nothing, (laughs) nothing at all like what they've said. And... I always just used to, you know, I never really thought that there was a reason for this. I just thought I was fussy, like everyone was saying. Um, But to find out that I actually have, you know, more of a sense of smell than some people do explains a lot and explains why I am so bothered by 
smells and you know textures and there's all sorts of things that come into play with it then so um yeah so you know my experience is very varied and it is changing a lot as I get older for sure um and I think that's what well, that was one of the main things that like led me to seek a diagnosis and seek treatment for it mm. that's really interesting what you said about sort of having like a high heightened smell and and um taste sensation because I feel like that like you said um I guess if you're not enjoying that or if somebody tells you it's going to be something it's then quite distressing that it's not um but I also wanted to ask you just mentioned there about how it's kind of changing as you get older um I know was just wondering if you knew if you could like pinpoint the changes that have happened from when you were younger to now I think the changes were when people stopped seeing me as a child, as a a fussy child, into where as an adult I'm expected to go out to a restaurant and just order a meal and, you know, still now I have to order either kids' meals or go to places like Weatherspoons or like really simple, you know, like what they say on the menu is exactly what's going to come on my plate. Right. it's places where you know you order you order like gammon and chips and it comes and there's an egg on it and there's all these salads and dressings and once it starts all touching each other it feels contaminated to me so that's sort of a big deal about that yeah I think when when I went to university was a pretty big moment because obviously that was my first sort of independent bit um I was living at home with my parents, obviously, until then, who were aware of my food problems. We didn't know what it was back then, but obviously they were just worried that I was going to go to uni, not be able to eat. Um, so, yeah, like that was sort of the main sort of um, the main time that I noticed major changes, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to go back and, you know, if if I'm asking too deep a question, then please just be like, I don't feel comfortable answering that. But you said, like, you know, if you go somewhere and then there's the egg on top of the gammon, whereas it just said that it was gammon and chips. I just kind of wanted to ask, like, what what sort of emotions does that provoke for you? Like, is there a fear of something in particular there? Yeah, so... It's weird because I eat eggs every day for breakfast, yeah. but the fact that it's touching the other food, okay. um, it, it does, when when that happens in restaurants, my immediate response is getting upset and being the age that I am, I'm trying to hide that I'm upset because obviously it's just a plate of food, you know? And when I was a child, I think it wouldn't have mattered if I cried, but as an adult now, like, yeah, it is embarrassing to sort of have that reaction um so whenever I do go for food my boyfriend my family they're all very aware of this and they're sort of ready to step in so so I don't have to deal with the confrontation of it um a common problem that I find happens is the restaurant will take the food back scrape it onto a new plate and then just bring it back out minus whatever was there literally so if if say like I had beans instead of peas added on my plate obviously the beans have now touched everything and left their mark and then they've just gone and scraped the beans off and I've had these chips back that I can't eat anyway and then that causes another confrontation so you can understand how it just became a very stressful experience 
Surely um, from a hygiene point of view, regardless of kind of why you're asking for that to go back, I can't imagine that that's allowed, surely. You think so, right? But yeah, yeah this is multiple times. And actually, I was eating in Weatherspoons probably about two months ago, and I saw it happen to a little boy sitting on the table next to us. And it, it very much sounded like he had arthrit. And I didn't say anything. I didn't want to butt into this family's you know, meal. But he, they sent his plate back like three times. And I think like that's why there needs to be more awareness of this and understanding because, you know, I shouldn't have to feel embarrassed that, that you know, they've made a mistake. And now I'm having to sort of deal with that, you know. When I was young, when I was about 10 years old, we were on holidays. And all I said was, can I have these sausages and chips but without the gravy on them the chef came out of the kitchen and shouted at me and my family about it I I don't know why I don't know why he was so adamant that the gravy had to be on the plate but I was I was literally about 10 years old and like that was really stuck in my memory of like well I can't complain about food you know (laughs) and I think that's part of that is a big part of our food in, in that you know, memories and situations that have happened very much dictate how how I do things now. And it's very hard to break out of habits once they've been sort of formed, you know? Yeah, and I was just thinking that it's kind of like a, a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you have the worries and the concerns about the food, but then, you know, if you've got people reacting in a way, like shouting at you and, and things, you then don't want to make a complaint like you said so it's almost there's no there's no way to win with it because both are unpleasant experiences yes exactly <laughs> yeah um and you mentioned there about you know there needs to be an increase in awareness for this which I completely agree with because I think like you say people do often just put it down to fussy eating. I guess my question is you know if somebody is presenting and they find certain foods difficult or maybe they just like certain types of food. Are there like clear differences for you between aphids and fussy eating? Um, I guess in young children, it might be quite difficult to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have much experience with young children since obviously being one. Um, but I've sort of been made aware that children generally grow out of fussy eating. They're interested in food. They want to try things. So I think like like more of a prolonged you know I think like parents would be the ones to notice possibly schools as well um so I think definitely schools is a place where they should be very aware of ARFID and other eating disorders you know because they do develop young um I have memories from being well like five years old in school that have stuck with me and it was of teachers making comments about my eating habits because I, I wouldn't eat in school they I think looking back, there was just too much going on, too many smells in the room. I didn't, I didn't like any of the food. But what I remember very clearly is the teachers making a very big deal about it and singling me out. And um, yeah, I just, you know, that's what, that's what, that's what I can think about with it, you know. And I don't think that, obviously, it did harm. It didn't help me at all. And. You know, if I, I don't completely blame them because they didn't know that this was a thing that was going to develop into a you know, lifelong eating disorder. But if they had been aware that this existed, perhaps it wouldn't have been their first thought to simply, you know, 
talk about me like that mm. it might have been more of a you know let's see if there's anything we can do you know I feel like it's quite a strange response if you if you're noticing that a child is uncomfortable to to kind of talk about them in that way and not provide support I've, I feel like that you know why is it any different just because it's because it's a you know a, like a, a relationship with food that seems quite strange yeah yeah I, I remember vividly being taken up to the canteen every day and them saying right do you like this do you like this and it was like three of them and then the dinner ladies were there mm-hmm. and there was one day where they had like sausage and chips and I like sausage and chips but out of like sheer principle at that point I said no because if I had said yes it would have been I don't know it would have been you know like throwing their hands up in the air oh finally or she likes something and I just didn't want to give them the satisfaction and I feel like you know at five years old I shouldn't have to think like that um but that was in the first year of school where we weren't allowed pack lunches because you had to use knives and forks so that was the year you had to be um wow. you know, do that so they would not allow pack lunches my mum went in you know she was furious complained a lot about it and just got nowhere um and then so the year after I could bring my pack lunches which helped me a bit mm-hmm. I still had the problems with you know smells and things in the room but at least I was sort of eating something in the day you know <laughs> yeah definitely you know is it something that you think that you're kind of just going to have to navigate, you know, like with going to certain restaurants that you feel comfortable and, and eating around people that you feel comfortable. Can you can you see being able to expand that? Yeah, definitely. I think it's already happening because to um, I'm trying to think of uh, the timings because of the lockdown. But uh, me and my boyfriend have been together a year now. I went into the relationship. I said, look, you're never going to be going out to nice restaurants with me. You know, we're not going to be, you know, sitting down to eat. You know, it'll be takeaways and that'll be it. And like he accepted that. And now a year down the line, we go out to eat, you know, every two weeks at least. Mm. Uh, at this point, I'm kind of bored of Weatherspoons that we've actually been looking for like other places to try. Um, so, yeah, it's a really nice feeling being able to expand on that because, you know, I, I do I, I do trust him a lot as well to know that if something goes wrong, he's going to be there for me and help me sort it out. Um, yeah, definitely. And hopefully I can continue, continue expanding restaurants, sort of the food I eat and everything. And yeah. <laughs> is that from going to therapy that you've been able to achieve that or is that kind of just self-motivated? Um, I think it's a mixture of both. Um, I I didn't receive any treatment for ARFID until 2020, so I was 21 or 22. Um, I received treatment for anorexia when I was 15. I was misdiagnosed. Um, And honestly, I think I found that more harmful than anything because it was a lady telling my mother that she had to force feed me. And, you know, yeah, it wasn't wasn't very pleasant. It didn't help. Um, So this treatment now was uh, CBT and a bit of exposure therapy. And we actually did it during the pandemic over video chat. So what we would do, we would just go really into detail of like one particular thought that I would have and we'd you know, go right back. And I think overall, it just really helped me to understand why I feel the way I do. And like, 
so when I, you know, when I get, um, you know, some kind of disordered eating thought now, I can sort of sit there and be like, okay, but I know why, why I've had that thought, why it's happening. And then I think the self-motivated bit was after being discharged, it was then up to me to sort of continue the work we were doing. Mm. So, you know, it's not like I try a new food every day or something like that, but I'm much more likely to, you know, try something similar or, you know, try something off my boyfriend's plate. Um, also reintroducing foods that I've eaten in the past that like I, I don't really eat anymore. Um, th- you know, things like eating vegetables. It sounds like such a silly thing to be almost afraid of, but I, I really have to make an effort to keep them in my diet because the easiest thing for me to do is retreat into this little safe zone of chips and nuggets and sausages just really simple foods that I, I've eaten all my life and they're not going to go wrong mm-hmm. it's when I start expanding out of that then that it becomes scary and yeah but I'm, I'm definitely coping a lot better with it and sort of managing and uh, yeah it's been it's been quite a journey <laughs> Well, that is brilliant to hear and well done you for, you know, really expanding that. And I can imagine, you know, from what you were saying at the start, and I know we've had conversations previously about sort of the impact it has. um, I can imagine that's, you know, really rewarding to be able to open that up. I wanted to ask you about the diagnosis. So you said that, I think, was it when you were 15, you got a diagnosis of anorexia? I kind of want to ask two questions, so I'll ask this one first. But when you, you know, what was the reasoning at the time that you went for the diagnosis? 15 years old. So I'd been in high school a couple of years. I basically had struggled with eating there the entire time I'd been there. Um, I was very underweight at the time, which I had been, you know, most of my life. But I think as a teenager, it was becoming more obvious that I was underweight. Um and yeah, we, you know, we knew there was something wrong. So in the end, it was actually me going to um, a counsellor in my school who transferred me to a school nurse who got me in touch with CAMS. Mm-hmm. Um, so it ended up that me and my mother would have to go once a week to go see this dietitian. And I, I, I don't have fond memories of her. She was not not very nice to me. Um, I can't say whether it would have been, you know, if I if I actually had had anorexia, whether it would have been useful or not, because it was obviously just the wrong treatment for me. Um, but it ended up that, you know, we, we were going every week and there was always something wrong. It was always a negative experience, whereas I think I needed more positive you know I've I've eaten three meals all week and that was a positive to me but all she could see was well you ate chicken nuggets twice that day and like my point was but I've eaten you know it was to me that was a win um so I actually got discharged I discharged myself um we me and my mother we just we, we started changing my food diary and being a bit dishonest on it which like I know we shouldn't have done but at that point we knew it wasn't working and we just wanted to get out of there um so yeah after that discharged myself and I just started eating just making sure I was eating three meals a day it didn't matter if it was the same thing twice a day I was just making sure I was eating those meals and getting my weight up because I felt like that was sort of 
the main you know that was that's the sort of dangerous thing isn't it like mm-hmm. making sure that I'm keeping my weight on felt like the most important thing at that time um and then yeah it was when I came into adulthood and uni then that I decided to go for you know a diagnosis again then at the time when you were 15 did you did you think that you had ARFID or were you just like well I know that I don't have anorexia I didn't know what ARFID was until I was diagnosed with it in 2020 um I about halfway through treatment I thought I don't think I'm anorexic Mm -hmm. because the the treatment included like my mother would have to cook all my meals and then watch me eat them to make sure I'm not like I don't know like getting rid of my food and pretending to eat and I thought that's not the issue at all you know if you put a plate of food in front of me that I like I'm going to eat it but if there's problems with it then that's when that's when I don't eat so yeah I I was pretty sure I didn't have anorexia but I was kind of at a loss then of what I did have um I don't know why I didn't sort of look into it and google or anything like that at the time I think I just felt quite deflated and I think around that time as well is where the anxiety web started forming um you know I was getting bullied a bit for it as well so there was a lot going on at the time and um yeah I just from that point onwards after being discharged if I ever came across a situation where I had to explain you know something about my eating I would just say you know sorry I can't do that I have an eating disorder or you know my mother would explain it if we're going out for a meal so it was just kind of a (laughs) like blanket statement of just I have a eating disorder and that's how it stayed until I finally found out what Arthur was. I think not it makes sense but you know if if everybody's telling you you're a fussy eater and it's kind of you know that's your problem you know when you said earlier I don't know why I didn't look I mean I don't I don't really blame you for not because it sounds very much like people were kind of just saying that it was your fault um and I think you know only recently like I mean I did my um, master's two years ago and that even then it was kind of like you know we're going to give you a lecture on ARFID but we don't know loads about it so I think you know the fact that you didn't go and look for it I think in a horrible way makes sense and I hope that now kind of things have moved on a bit what made you go back when you were 20 for the diagnosis um it was I was living in university and the very first year I went I thought right I might just go and get my own flat with my own kitchen and I thought what life is that for a uni student I'm not going to meet anyone so I ended up going into an eight-person flat uh, where I had to share a kitchen and you know I had absolutely lovely housemates but you know eight people in a kitchen sometimes it got messy I found it really hard to cope with um second year in a five girl uh uni house sort of the same sort of thing and like I had really good friends there, really understanding people but there was still there's still things that held me back mm. um you know even just like a pile of washing up which you know might not be I don't think it was completely unreasonable you know it it might be a bit funny if it was a couple of days but that alone would be enough to make me not be able to cook my food in a kitchen 
And at that point, it felt like, you know, I just, I needed to, you know, seek treatment so I can help myself um, and not have to rely on other people to, you know, clean something up or cook for me or anything like that. Mm. Um, I was also, I also faint due to lack of food sometimes. Mm. And moving away to uni, obviously didn't have my parents there. Again, just didn't want to rely on people. Um, so, yeah, I just decided, you know, I'm in Cardiff now. I'm in the capital city. I'm not in the middle of nowhere in rural <laughs> Wales. Hopefully there's some someone here that can sort of talk to me about this. And, yeah, I went to the doctors and it was a pretty long process. It was primary mental health team. I was getting counselling for anxiety. And then it was on the eating disorder service. I think it's called EDSOC in Cardiff. Um, and they were they were really helpful. Uh, straight away, I got through to a high intensity psychological therapist or something like that. And in like our first meeting, she said the word Arfid. And it turns out I, I've kept in touch with her since. She actually didn't know that I hadn't been diagnosed before. <laughs> so she thought that I'd already been explained to that this is what you have. This is what it is. So she had no idea that she was my first point of point of reference for Arfid. Um, and then, yeah, we started our treatment. Wow. And how did you feel? Like, did, did you have any idea what it was? Or was it something that you had to go away and find? Or did she explain to you about it? She, she did explain quite a lot about it. And I remember she was like reading off these symptoms. Um, we were like sharing a workbook packet and she was reading off the symptoms and I just thought oh my god I could have written this myself mm. it was crazy it was a proper like light bulb moment of oh my god I'm not alone you know other people are experiencing this because you know until that point I hadn't met anyone who was even remotely similar to me and you know again like if I would looked on the internet I probably would have found some but you know it's really difficult to actually find find out what half it is without knowing the name for it as well so that was I think that was quite a big thing um but then as soon as I found out I found like Facebook community groups and um the like eating disorder circle on Twitter is really informative so I definitely feel you know uh, understood and like yeah like I'm part of a sort of community now because it's so you know somebody posts in a problem everyone's there to give their advice on what helped them and who they could see because we all know that it's it's hard for us to get treatment like I was immensely lucky to get my treatment because I was only one of two people in Cardiff that year to receive it I was a guinea pig for the very first year of it um, I actually attended a, com- a conference for Wales as well, mm-hmm. and um, there was a. Was, I was in like a breakout room with a couple of people. I, I didn't know who they were, but they mentioned BMI being a factor for treatment for Arfid. But I, I really don't think that that's a fair thing to sort of grade you on because for me, Arfid meant that I just lived on chips figures, and you know, at that point somebody could very well be overweight and still having troubles with it and they should be treated exactly the same so yeah it was uh 
quite a big thing finding the community and like I think it, it's definitely inspired me to try and raise awareness and you know make sure more people know about this yeah definitely I think I want to say I'm shocked about the BMI thing but I'm not yeah. because because yeah. we know we've got the same story with anorexia as well in that you know the the impact that it's having on you can still all be there regardless of your weight and like you say you know you you could be stuck on only being able to eat on certain food and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be underweight but you could be malnourished in different ways um which you know and obviously like the social impact and the mental impact that it has it's, it's all completely valid for for support um I guess when you were talking about awareness there, one thing I wanted to ask you about um, was, I think ARFID is improving, uh, like increasing in awareness, but I think it's still sort of seen, like we were saying earlier, as a childhood um, condition, which I think is, is, I'm very much at the moment, like when I first started this podcast, I think I said this, um, on a podcast a, f- a few weeks ago but it kind of when you first start learning about eating disorders you're like oh this is how it presents and you know this is a a, a common population that it presents in and I think ARFID has definitely been one of those that it's common in children um is that something that is like quite prevalent for you if, if you do speak about it and somebody knows are they often shocked or kind of how does that conversation go um I think anybody who knows what ARFID is are aware that it's it goes beyond children um I haven't personally experienced um somebody sort of saying that but I think in terms of like the symptoms if I say you know my food can't touch and I have to do this and that and they will immediately associate that with what children do um but yeah, it, it's crazy because there's so much that there's so there's so much that needs doing with it. You know, I I I'm terrified of having to stay in hospital overnight because I won't like the food, mm-hmm. and I don't know how I would resolve that. Or, you know, old people develop it as well quite a lot, mm-hmm. but obviously people don't really know about that. Um, you know, because as we get older, our stomachs change. We can cope with different things. And, you know, imagine being an old lady going into a nursing home and trying to explain that to people who've never heard of it before, you know, and I think, I think people, people just don't seem to care unless it impacts them, which I think is a common problem with some people anyway, with like all mental illnesses. Um, But, you know, I think the scary thing about it is it could happen to anyone at any time. People have an incident where they choke on some food and that can be enough to cause ARFID where they find it difficult to swallow and things like that and you know another that's another thing that people just don't know just don't know about you know Mm. yeah I think there's there's so much to it in terms of the different ways that it can present as well like you were saying you know there can be that um fear of choking or, or other consequences of food but then also, like you were saying earlier, you know, the contamination um, and, and food poisoning as well. So I think that's another aspect of it is, you know, those diverse ranges 
a diverse range of um, things that can be kind of, you know, the worrying aspect of it. Um, but I also was thinking that I found that I've, I mean, I've never thought about that before, but, um, but you know, specifically what you were saying about maybe the older generation. And I know, I guess my question would be, do you think that that is offered? Because I know when my grandma, um, when she was getting older and she was quite poorly, she could only have certain textures of foods and she would eat very specific foods. So I guess, I guess there's like a lot of blurred lines, isn't there? Because... I don't know whether that would have been a diagnosis of ARFID or, or what do you think? Yeah, it, that, I think that's the problem, isn't it? The sort of blurred lines between it. Um, my grandfather right now is all of a sudden becoming sick if he eats mushrooms, which he's eaten his whole life. Now, I wouldn't say he's got ARFID because he knows, OK, I just won't eat mushrooms anymore. Um, but maybe in somebody else the the act of being sick would be enough that they would stop eating all vegetables altogether and cause all these other things um so again i think it's like like trying to determine whether a child is just a little bit fussy or actively you know having problems with arfid i think it just needs to be aware of monitored and seeing if it impacts somebody's life you know yeah I think you've knocked the nail on the head there it's almost the impact that it's having because you know you 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 might not like a particular food but is that impacting you socially is that impacting you mentally you know are you able to kind of if somebody made it could you have it you just don't actually particularly want it um whereas I think ARFID you know is a lot more than that it's it's the kind of you know the um the word has just gone from my head sort of like the mental impact that that's having on you as well. Um, so in terms of kind of like going forward um, for awareness, what do you think needs to sort of happen or change in terms of creating that awareness for ARFID? Um, I think, I think people, I think it needs to start in places like doctors and that kind of thing. Um, I, I can't tell you, I've been to every doctor mentioned ARFID and they said never heard of that not a clue mm-hmm. you know so and I know like I, I've gone to some in sort of rural Wales but also you know we don't have as many options as cities for treatment sometimes so they need to be the ones that actually are informed about it um, I think dentists are another place so I've been told off my entire life for not looking after my teeth very well found out literally the other day that other people with ARFID have the same thing and mm. um, I realized it makes sense I'm you know I have a brush in my mouth I'm disturbing food potentially that could be stuck in my teeth toothpaste is a really awful taste and you don't really have a choice of what what it is and it's really strong for me um, so you know things like that and I told my dentist about it and he said oh I've never heard of that mm. but can't imagine you know the screaming children that might be in there experiencing the same thing and perhaps if a dentist just knew to look mm-hmm. out for kids who you know aren't aren't naughty but can't seem to look after their teeth very well then maybe that's a sign and maybe then they could be passed a leaflet about ARFID and whether it's something they need to look into um and the same thing with nursing homes things like that I think just just them knowing about it and knowing what they could do to help would be 
you know, it would be ideal and I think it would help a lot of people. Um, I did a thread on Twitter not long ago for Eating Disorder Awareness Week and I had a couple of messages. One was like an 84-year-old lady who said that, like, she's just, like, like she said, thank you for saying the name of this. I've had it my whole life and I've just found out. Imagine being 84 and like not knowing, you know, for your whole life. Um, yeah, I think it just needs to be, it needs to be more of a common known thing because it's not, it's not even like it's rare. It seems to be, it actually impacts a lot of people. So it does make me wonder why we don't know more about it or why the general public don't know much about it, you know? Yeah. I imagine as well it's the kind of thing that if you don't know about you know that for that lady that was 84 not knowing what ARFID is kind of getting that I would imagine that there'd be like comments from family or friends like oh you know why can't you just like just have, be more diverse with your food and then getting frustrated with yourself like why can't I just eat something else like it's you know everyone else seems to be able to do it um so yeah, that's so sad that it's it's been so long, but then you know, you have helped her to realize it. So good on you for kind of raising that awareness. Um, I have a couple of questions from the listeners for you. Um so the first one, um, somebody's asked how you went about increasing kind of the repertoire of foods that you were able to eat. Oh, okay. So one thing that um, I learned in treatment was something called food chaining. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start with my chicken nuggets and chips, which is a very safe, very everyday meal for me. So from that, I know I like the chicken, so I'll go to a chicken portion instead, which, you know, it might be a little bit, you know, a healthier, more adult option than a chicken nugget. And then from chips, you know, the potato. So then I tried a jacket potato, new potatoes, which are still, you know, they're very plain, very simple, but it's such a something different. And then I can try adding, you know, some mixed herbs onto that, seeing if I like that. Um, Or meat is one that I've actually been working quite a bit bit on at the moment. Um, And I've managed to now expand it to, I'm eating burgers, steaks, gammons, um you know at the moment it's very particular it's got to be the the burgers from Iceland in that packaging but you know it's a start and I'm really enjoying them um so yeah food chaining is definitely a good one I would say um perhaps eating like different forms of the foods you like as well so you know if you like an orange you can do orange juice Mm -hmm. or you I like yeah like the family I don't know what the names are of those little funny ones tangerines tangerines yeah I'm not very good at fruit vocabulary I know the ones I eat and that's about it you know um yeah so sort of things like that on expanding basically expanding outwards on what you like and not you know some people maybe it would work for some people just throwing yourself in the deep end and having something completely bonkers but for me, with my heightened smell and taste and things, definitely working my way out slowly helps me a lot. Yeah. I can imagine doing it slowly as well 
because because of that kind of like anxiety associated with it doing it you know from a chicken nugget to a chicken breast there's still going to be that anxiety there but I'd imagine not as much as like going from chicken nuts like a full roast dinner of like there's so many unknowns and also you know then like reflecting afterwards you could think very specifically about how that one food made you feel and if it's you know still an anxiety provoking situation but less of I think you're more bound to do it again rather than going from something you're very comfortable with to oh my god this is huge you know that's not going to be something that you want to keep going back to trying all the time yes yeah and also apparently it does take a few times of trying a new food to you know like it and I think if you scare yourself with something wild straight away then you're not going to want to try it again um you know I I went most of my life without eating a single vegetable I I think I ate like peas and that was about it um so when I tried broccoli it was pretty horrifying because it's it, it's looks so different to everything and it tastes really different and now that's one of my staple Mm. things because I just have to try it slowly and keep keep trying it so I think there is a bit of you know you do have to sort of force yourself sometimes to do it but I think that's the key in that you want to do it yourself not having somebody else forcing you to do it because if anything that made me a lot worse and you know angry and you know not going to do it if somebody's forcing me you know yeah I think that's often that's often been my kind of thing about recovery from any eating disorder mental health illness whatever it kind of has to come from you and you can try I tried for years and years I didn't want to get better but I kept trying recovery because everybody else wanted me to and that is a very kind of you know it doesn't work unfortunately um and then the other question that we had which I guess this is more how your family supported you but you might have some tips um so a family member has asked you know in the situations where food is difficult what's the best way to support somebody with that oh um I think I think like what we just discussed where you know there's no there's no forcing there's nothing like that that's a big one um maybe maybe perhaps asking if there's anything that you can do to help um for example I might ask if I want to try something new, I might ask my boyfriend to cook it for me because he knows how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it would help if he ate it with me. Maybe sometimes I prefer to do it alone. I think just respecting what what the person wants and, you know, listening. And, yeah, I guess in general, just, yeah, just listening to them because it might be that they want a more personal, individual journey. It's, it's difficult to sort of predict I think everyone's so different with it um yeah I think just keep it and also you know it is when it gets bad if it gets really bad you have to know to look out for you know hitting sort of that rock bottom with it Um, because obviously it can be dangerous there's um I you know personally I've never had to do it but I know a lot of kids have to be put on NG tubes and things like that because I think I, I think I think I wrote about this actually before the the difference as well between being a child and being an adult is that I now understand the importance of nutrition and things yeah. like that 
as a child, I didn't care, quite frankly. I, I didn't understand that actually if I carried on the way I was, I could have put myself in hospital. You know, you even have organs shutting down. It's crazy what, you know, malnutrition can do to your body. And I think, yeah, being aware of somebody's limits on, you know, when you should leave them, when you should intervene as well, it's quite yeah. difficult. Um, but also there's a lot of information out there now. And if you know about ARFID, you know, there's the, um, the, the oh, I can't remember the name of the website. I wrote a blog post with them not long ago. <laughs> I'll check that. I'll have to send it to you. Yeah. Um, you know, eating disorder websites that give, you know, great information. Beat is another one. Um, yeah. Making sure that, you know, you understand what you're dealing with. And often those websites may give lists of do's and don'ts. Mm, which, yeah. Uh, yeah. Really, really good read. Uh, a good read and uh, making it easier to understand, you know. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's kind of trying to understand what's going on from the other person's perspective because, you know, you will want to help and support as much as possible. But I think it could get frustrating sometimes as to, you know, why wouldn't you just do it or whatever? Um, So definitely, like you said, reading up on it can be, yeah, really helpful. Um, So, yes, thank you so much um, for joining me. it's been absolutely lovely to speak to you and thank you for being so open and honest about your experience oh that's okay thank you for having me it's been yeah it's really nice to talk about it and get awareness out and everything so yeah, yeah thank you See, and if people want to kind of follow you anywhere for a, more blog posts or more awareness where can they find you uh i think my twitter is just talia page d at the end um at the moment and I, I have actually been running an ARFID blog for the past God, two years since my diagnosis. Um, but I'm having a good tidy up and reshuffle <laughs> of it all at the moment because I was probably upset when I wrote some of those blog posts. I thought I better just make sure that everything, you know, I want it out there in the world mm-hmm. with my name on. So uh, I'm rejigging that at the moment and I, I'll send it to you when I'm sort of happy with that as well. So, yeah. well thank you Talia so much and thank you for everything you're doing as well and best of luck with your journey sounds like you're doing a fantastic job thank you if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe eating disorders are crippling illnesses but with the right support they can be recovered from we really hope you enjoyed this episode but if you require more support right now please look into charities such as first steps and beat for support or talk to someone you trust